Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have made fascinating career changes and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their journeys, how they changed career, the challenges they faced along the way and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. I started this podcast to be the resource I wish had existed when I felt stuck in my legal career and didn't know how to follow my dream of a career in fashion. I finally did though and I'm now a fashion stylist and brand consultant. You can find out more about what I do on my website suzannedelahunty.com. I'd love to hear about what your dream careers are, so tag Freedom Hunters on Instagram wherever you're listening to it and let me know. It's at Freedom Hunters Pod. And if you enjoy Freedom Hunters, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so that I can reach as many people as possible who need some inspiration to create their own dream career. My guest today is Australian author, presenter, columnist and political commentator Jamila Rizvi. Jamila started her career in politics. Her first job out of university was working for the then Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. From her role as an advisor in politics, Jamila took her career into media, where she worked at the online news site Mamma Mia, which grew to become the leading voice for women in Australia under her watch. Today, Jamila is the Chief Creative Officer for the Nine Network's Future Women. Jamila writes regular columns for Australia's leading newspapers and has written and edited four books. During Melbourne's strict lockdown this year, Jamila has written and produced two books. Untold Resilience is a collection of stories of women's strength and courage in extraordinary situations and world events. I'm a Hero 2 is a children's book she wrote in order to help children process what has happened in 2020. I spoke to Jamila about her career journey and how she made each career change along the way, but what gave me such touching insight into her career and her resilience is her experience dealing with a recurring brain tumour, two brain surgeries, and how she now approaches her career having been through such life-altering experiences. She has a perspective that is truly unique. It will give you reason to pause and consider your own definitions of success. So please enjoy a very special episode of Freedom Hunters. Jamila Rizvi, thank you so much for joining me on Freedom Hunters. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to start right at the start. So can you tell me where did you grow up and what kind of kid were you? What were you into? I grew up in Canberra, which is Australia's capital city and also importantly where its government is based. So I grew up the daughter of a teacher and a senior public servant and it was pretty normal for us to have, I wouldn't say political conversations around the dinner table, but policy conversations around the dinner table. I was really brought up with an understanding that the best way to change people's lives for the better was through the power of government, which as a kid, I always just thought it was really normal. That's what everyone was like. Uh, and now I realise that's quite uh, <laughs> quite specific to government towns like Canberra. Um, I was a really happy kid. I, I um, had my own issues at the time. I used to get grumpy about things and fight with my sister and all that sort of stuff. But looking back, I realised I had a pretty idyllic childhood overall and um, had wonderful parents who were very much in love with each other as well as us and we were raised with uh, really strong values around education and multiculturalism in particular. And we were given every opportunity 
not so much in the financial spend lots of money sense, but in the whatever you love doing, you can pursue. And so I, they, my parents didn't put a lot of pressure on us around school and marks. They wanted us to do well, but they wanted us to have fun. So I was that enthusiastic kid that was in every school play on every school sporting team. If there was something fun going on, I was in it. So what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a director. Uh, I always loved acting and drama at school, like most outgoing kids, I think. You know, out of all the school subjects, drama is where you get to channel your extroversion uh, like no other subject. Um, but I loved being in charge more than I loved being on stage. <laughs> so I always had this vision of myself as, as being a film director one day so I could boss other people around. So when it came to uh, university then, what did you choose to study and why? Well, I remember wanting to go to NIDA, the National Institute of Dramatic Art, and be a director, but they don't take directors straight out of school. So you can't study it. You have to have done another degree, uh, which I remember thinking was remarkably unfair. Um, so I decided to go and get my undergraduate degree um, and studied something different entirely. I studied law and economics and commerce uh, at the ANU in Canberra. Um I was really interested in economics and I had been through year 11 and 12 studying economics and politics uh, sort of together. I really enjoyed the field and for me it was a practical way of being interested in maths rather than kind of the kind of esoteric way where I think I'd previously done maths in school and thought, when will I ever use this again, whereas economics felt different. And then I think like a lot of kids who, who got good marks, I, I did law because I got in, to be honest. Um <laughs> Yeah. But it ended up being the more interesting part of my degree. Yeah. And at that point, did you know where that might lead or were you still thinking director something in, in that area? I had absolutely no idea. Um, I hadn't really thought beyond the the immediate term, I think. I, you know, I th I, and a lot of students feel this in, in year 12. You know, we're recording this coming up to the end of the year and I've talked to so many kids who've done year 12 this year and um, they've all spoken about that sense that I remember having of this is momentous, this is big, and this is the beginning of grown-up life and and so a little voice in the back of your head saying, but I'm not quite sure what kind of grown-up I want to be. And, you know, the main thing I tell kids now is you don't have to know. Just do, do something with your talents that is general uh, and take your time and figure it out. I think that's such good advice. And I liked uh, hearing you say that you didn't know what you wanted to do with it because I was the same. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it's so young to kind of be making lifelong decisions. But you were also, Absolutely. You were also um, student body president while you were in uh, at ANU. Did that give you a taste for what it might like to be working in politics? Yeah, I got interested in politics uh, pretty much my first week on, on campus. I remember at orientation week walking around and, you know, joining the tennis club and the netball club and the whatever else it happened to be and straight away joined the Labor Students Club, uh, which, you know, I think was less popular uh, than the <laughs> netball. Um, and so, yeah, I was interested in politics. I was always interested in progressive politics. And on campus I got just swept up in the idea that uh, the students got, to some extent, some control over the university, not the whole university, but 
parts of it we got to influence and I wanted to be one of those students who got to have that influence and took me a while to get the um I suppose the guts up to run for student president I I was I don't think I ever had any doubt I could do the job I was quite confident that I had the the skill set to be good at it but the popularity contest element of it freaked me out the idea of being rejected by my peers felt like it wasn't worth putting myself out there for <laughs> Um, but eventually kind of talked myself into it and had a crack. And it was absolutely one of the best years of my life. I, I was 21. I had a team of, I think, 30 or 40 students working with me. And we had a staff of five or six at the ANU Students' Union. And, um, you know, we were running a small business to an extent and working with the university administration and it was a crash course in in being a grown-up and being in the world of work, not the world of university. Did that influence you in any way to then go for a role in government out of university? Yeah, absolutely. I So when I got to the end of that year as student president, I remember I could see that I could see the end date coming up on the horizon. You finished at the end of November and I didn't want to go back to being a full-time student. I still had a bunch of my degree left to go. (laughs) Probably should have gone back and been a full-time student. Um, But I just, I I think I felt like I'd be going backwards and I wanted to keep doing the exciting activism kind of work that I'd been doing. And um, that year was 2007, eight, and when I was president. And so Kevin Rudd's government had been elected in Australia. It was the first Labor government in 12 years. And it was incredibly exciting. And, and at that time, Kevin Rudd was hugely popular. He had approval ratings above 70% in the public polls. And um, I'd met him as part of a, a government event called the 2020 Summit. I don't know if you remember it. Um, and he joked to me and said, oh, one day you should come and get a job with me. And I had held on to that. I had taken that very seriously and it was not by any means a serious job offer. It was a joke. And uh, so I called his office and um, I also knew someone who worked for him and I kind of, uh, I think the best word for it is stumbled my way into a job working in his media office. Oh, wow. Good for you. <laughs> so, so what was it like working in that, that highest level of government for someone just coming out of university, what were your responsibilities and what was the learning curve like for you? Uh, my responsibilities were very small. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the, be- it's, the, it's the best description I can give. Um, uh, I worked extremely hard. We, we all did. Uh, there was a lot expected of, of that team. We worked really long hours. I went from being a uni student who stumbled into the office a little bit hungover around 9.30 in the morning to being up at quarter past three and being in the office before quarter to four. So I had very early starts and would normally work a, a full day after that. I usually wasn't home until close to 5pm. Um, so it was, a, it was a hectic workplace. It was incredibly fast paced, but the work I was doing was not intellectually difficult if that, if that makes sense it was important work and it was necessary work um but it wasn't high stakes in the sense of it didn't require that intellectual engagement from me so i was doing a lot of things like writing down everything that came out of kevin's mouth and taking a lot of notes and uh, following him around press conferences and making sure that stages were set up properly and mics were working that the journalists knew where they had to be um 
a lot of that kind of grunt work that happens around a prime ministerial team. But at the same time, I was in the room where huge decisions were being made and particularly strategic conversations around dealing with the media and messaging. I, I was around that a lot. And so I think I learned a huge amount that year just by shutting up and, and listening most of the time. So how long were you there before you made your next career move? I worked with Kevin for around a year, I think, and then I moved to Kate Ellis's office. She was uh, the Minister for Youth and Sport at the time, and I was with her for three or four years um, in a range of different roles while she had a range of different ministerial portfolios. And I worked with her until not long before the end of the Gillard government. So you finished working in government. What what was part of what formed that decision to leave and take your career in another direction? It was a really practical decision, uh, really. I, I loved what I did. I loved that work. And, and by the time I was working with Kate Ellis, we were working really closely. I'd acted as her chief of staff for, for long periods of time. And I think both uh, strategically and policy-wise, we were quite aligned. I had a good sense of where she was going and what she loved and what she wanted to do. And I, I really thrived on that work, particularly the work around women's policy and employment and childcare. Like those things really mattered to me. And, and I was really focused on the strategy of how we made change for people in the parliament. Um, but I was a practical, honest young person. I was 25 and I could see the government was on the nose and I thought the government was going to lose. And I had a choice of being on a ship that I saw was sinking and, and that's a really disloyal thing to say in politics but that's what I saw as happening or moving on to the next thing. And to be honest, I think I was most worried about being one of a thousand Labor Party staffers with a similar skill sets all looking for jobs at the same time. I felt like I wasn't going to be competitive. So I started to have a look around for something else and uh, Mia Friedman, who at the time ran quite a small blog called Mamma Mia, uh, had um, a job going and Lisa Wilkinson, um, who at the time was hosting the Today Show, uh, tweeted uh, that line from the Devil Wears Prada. She, t she tweeted, uh, this is the job a thousand girls would die for, just with a link. And I you know, clicked on the link and, and sent an application off. Oh, wow. So what... What made you decide that a role in media was for you at that point? I'd been a, me a media advisor for a lot of uh, my time in government, not all of it, but a lot of it, and I certainly felt like I was better suited to the media side of things than I was to the policy development side of things. Um, I was good at that communications element. I loved the speech writing. I liked working with the press. Um, and I'd been a big part of the government strategy for engaging with alternative media, as we called it then, <laughs> uh, you know, going outside the Canberra Press Gallery and talking to blogs like like Mia's. So um, I thought they were important and I thought the conversations and the way Mia was doing things were really interesting and innovative and exciting. Um, I don't think I thought about it long term. I, I think I've always made quite tactical career decisions rather than strategic ones. I've tended to look short term rather than long term and go with what I thought would be a lot of fun uh, and what I thought would push me. Um, and I, after I met Mia, I really got caught up with her enthusiasm and her energy um, for what she created and I, I wanted to be part of it. 
Digital media is such a fast-paced and high-pressure environment, especially at that point for Mamma Mia when it's in that growth phase. So what was the learning curve like at Mamma Mia and how was how was those the first year or so there? Um, it was a hysterically steep uh, <laughs> learning curve. I, I think about I think it was about six weeks in I offered Mia my resignation. I just went <laughs> I, she deserves someone better. She deserves someone who understands where she wants to go. I just felt like we clashed all the time. And uh, to an extent we did, Mia and I are really different people. We have very different skill sets. And eventually that became a huge positive for Mamma Mia in that I think we were quite good compliments for one another. But early on I, I found that my very ordered, controlled way of doing things didn't quite suit Mia's creative, slightly more erratic way of doing things. And that was hard because she was the boss and, you know, I, I was following her her way of doing things rather than instituting my own and, and my instincts were all about process and strategy and understanding the numbers and sitting down and saying what are people clicking on, what's working, what's not, whereas hers was a real gut instinct and Mia has an incredible gut instinct. Um, I think she's got a sense of the zeitgeist quite unlike anyone I've ever met, um, but you can't learn that, unfortunately. <laughs> And um, so for me, I, I had to rely on the strategic way of doing things, the analytical way of doing things, and I don't think that worked early on. But we found our way, and, and somewhere around that two, three-month mark, we just clicked and we, we hit our stride and we started growing and suddenly our kind of three or four editorial staff was 10 or 15 and we needed new offices and suddenly 10 or 15 was 20 or 30 and then suddenly the whole company was 200 people and that all happened very, very quickly. So you were eventually editor-in-chief there or did you go in as editor-in-chief or you that's something you I, I went into? in as editor. Yeah. Yeah, I went in as editor and then um, then we got more websites. So <laughs> I sort of took on an editor-in-chief role because we just kept creating more websites. So what does what is being an editor-in-chief? What does that involve day-to-day? I suspect it's different at different publications at different points. I, I even imagine the editor-in-chief of Mamma Mia now probably has a very different role to, to what I did. Um, uh, when I was there, I worked really closely with the editors of each of the uh, websites that Mamma Mia owned in the Mamma Mia stable, but also with each of the um, sort of senior editorial staff. I was in charge of working with Mia on the creative and strategic direction of the editorial output. So whether or not that was written content, whether or not that was how we um, scheduled our content on social media or the way we sold our content in or the sorts of journalists that we hired or the kinds of stories we were going to tell, the kinds of images we used to tell those stories, whether or not we used video to be telling those stories, um, analysing where our audience wanted us to be versus where we thought we needed to be where the gaps in the market were versus where we actually wanted to go, that more steering the ship, big picture stuff. But as I think I've touched on already, I'm quite a tactical person. So I've never been good at let – I like the strategic, but I've never been able to let go of that day-to-day, get-your-hands-dirty stuff. Um, So I still liked to be sitting with the the more junior, super clever – staff that we had at Mamma Mia and just talking about the day-to-day how many people are on the website at this minute at 8.22 p.m. and how can we increase it by 8.25 p.m. Um, I 
really loved that and I found it quite addictive. Oh, I imagine it would be. It does it really does sound like the job that, you know, thousands of people would want. <laughs> but what so while you were there, um and I think probably after as well, you've you wrote opinion pieces or you would voice opinions on TV shows and people would disagree with your views and some of those people even made death and rape threats against you on the internet, which is horrendous. These days, a career in media comes with this risk that people who hold different views to your own are going to be making threats and saying all sorts of nasty things about you all over the internet. How did you or do you uh, deal with that? Did it did it ever make you self-censor or decide not to comment when it comes to some topics? Did it ever make you a little hesitant? Yeah, I think for me this is very much still present tense. Uh, once you start writing opinion, I, I now write for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and Sunday Life and the Good Weekend, so I'm still writing opinion and people still disagree with me on the regular. <laughs> um I, I hate how normalized internet abuse is and I hate how normalized it is for me. I, you know, I, I kind of think about abuse or commentary on the internet that goes too far and I just go, it's in my head. I kind of go, Oh, yeah, it's awful, but that's how it is. And I hate that I do that because it shouldn't be how it is. Uh, and we should be taking uh, the position that what we make criminal in the, so-called real world should be criminal on the internet because how can you tell me what happens on the internet isn't the real world? Most of us live four or five, six plus hours a day of our life on the internet. So well, it has to be the real world to an extent. Um, you do become hardened to it when you write opinion regularly. Um, even if 80% of the population agrees with you and 18% think you're glorious and are saying wonderful things, there will still be 2% who really didn't like what you had to say. And those people are often loud and they're the ones that stick in your head. And one mm -hmm. of the things I learned when I was younger and first doing it was that I would remember the bad comments word for word, but I didn't ever remember the good ones. I just sort of let them wash over me. There'd be 20 good comments and one horrible one and I'd be able to quote the horrible one word for word. I did struggle at first and I think I did. There was probably a period I started to self-centre, not so much anymore, self-censor, sorry, um, not so much anymore. I, definitely what helped me was working with the younger staff at Mamma Mia who were so capable and just, you know, they, they were these young, hungry journalists with these bold opinions and I watched them write those opinions, get smashed down for them publicly and then be too scared to write them again. And seeing that happen and feeling really outrageously protective and wanting to protect them from that abuse on the one hand, but also wanting to protect their talent and on the other and say to them, no, 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 your opinion matters. Please don't be scared to write it. Please don't dial down your passion or your fury or your intensity or your jokes just because you're scared of what, what the response might be. Something I've watched start to happen in internet culture over the last year or two has been this idea of calling people in rather than calling people out, which is something I really like. So much of the time we're shouty and yelly and shading online. And I'm, I think people are much more likely to learn from their mistakes if they're not outed publicly, but they get a quiet private message that just says, oh, I just wanted to make sure that you knew this about what you just said in your article. That's much more likely to make me respond positively and make me reconsider my actions. And I think it's the same for others. So 
I hope we can move towards an internet culture where we're just a little bit kinder and a little bit more compassionate because I think all of us have mistakes that we do make and have made and all of us should want to be better, but it's hard to be better when everyone's yelling at you. Um, I think you're more likely to want to actually change your behaviour if there is a quiet, respectful conversation. Absolutely. Actually, there was a really good uh, interview with Magda Subansky on on the briefing <laughs> where she talks about it as well. And she was just saying that there's there's no right or wrong way to deal with that kind of thing with these, you know, trolling and that sort of thing. It's got to be a dynamic response and it'd be great if it becomes this way of, of like you say, just calling them in and, um, you know, showing that there's a human being on the other end of those, at the receiving end of those comments. You you left Mamma Mia. Tell me about that decision to leave and, and what was your plan at that point for the next step in your career? Uh, I'd had a baby um, and I'd taken a few months off on parental leave and when I came back, I think I'd outgrown the company and I think the company had outgrown me. So I, I think there were, um, there was a readiness to move on, on, on both sides. Um, and I really wanted to write a book and I'd wanted to write a book for some time. I had a, I had a secret folder in my inbox where I'd been saving articles for over two years when I thought, Oh, one day I'll write about that. One day I'll write about that. And it seemed like the time. So I, I decided to leave. I, um, found some work that would keep me going and just make sure I had that stable safety net income. I was working uh, for news, writing for News Limited at the time and doing some other bits and pieces consulting. And um, I uh, got a book contract with Penguin to write Not Just Lucky. And I just threw myself into that for around nine months. I worked on that two or three days a week um, until it was finished. Um, yeah, I really wanted to talk to you about Not Just Lucky. Um because I I read it and just found it to be amazing. You wrote so you wrote not just lucky as a reaction to so many successful women putting their phenomenal achievements down to just luck rather than their talent, uh, their talent or intelligence or just overall awesomeness. And it covers so many pertinent topics around gender inequality as well as providing really practical advice to women at the start of their careers. I had quite a, a long career in the corporate world, but even for me reading it, I just found so much just fell into place because what you did with that book was actually put it all in context and give reasons why you know, this is why you were probably in this situation where this happened um, and this is why you didn't, you know, speak up about it, you know. Or, but even think, talking about things like crying in front of your boss, like I really loved that chapter or that, that part of the book because there's reasons for this, you know, and so I really, really, uh, the reason I bring it up is I think that for anyone listening um, today, if you're in a career and that you're not enjoying and you're in the corporate world, not just lucky gives some really practical advice for just dealing with, you know, difficult situations. When you were writing it and researching it, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of information in there, which is a little bit depressing. Did you, and I found myself just getting really quite triggered by it. <laughs> we, did you find you were getting quite angry and frustrated about it as well as you were writing about it? Well, firstly, thank you. Um, the seriously, the the single best 
thing that happens to me every day is I usually wake up or go to sleep for with a DM on Instagram from someone telling me that just not just like he helped them in some way at work and it's the most gratifying thing. So it's always really nice to to hear. I that book is very much research led. Um, it, you know, I'm not a professional researcher, but I spent years on the on the research and deep in journal articles and the psychology and socialization of girls and um, how patriarchy patriarchy manifests itself in workplaces and it is depressing. It, it is hard. And I, I think it is distressing when you realize that your own brain is working against you to an extent, extent that you are socialized from the day you are born to have a certain set of expectations about who you should be in the world and how you should behave and that they are very different um, to the person standing beside you if that person happens to be a man, that the expectations on us are extremely different and that workplaces were built forgive the cliche, but we're built for straight white men and still exist largely for straight white men. It's just that a few of the rest of us have arrived and kind of carved out a bit of space for ourselves, but they're still structured to benefit and advance a certain kind of person. Um, and I think when all of that evidence and all of that data is pulled together and put in front of you, it can be really overwhelming to, to the point that I remember I, I when I wrote the first conclusion for not just lucky, I wrote it the week that Donald Trump was elected cool. and I handed the book into my editors and um, <laughs> they handed it back about four weeks later and the top comment was, this is a very uplifting book except for the final chapter, which is quite distressing. You may wish to reconsider. <laughs> and I had to, and I think I just, it just got too much. Like I'd, I'd been doing all this work and all this research and speaking to all these women who'd experienced sexual harassment at work or discrimination or being held back or uh, had imposter syndrome or felt like they weren't good enough or who had had women bosses who treated them badly and they couldn't, they just couldn't understand it. Um, and, or the weight of all of that. And then the election of Trump <laughs> over, <laughs> over Hillary Clinton, no less, was just, it was just too much for me. And I, I think I wrote this very depressing conclusion that I then rewrote entirely, I promise. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think you can write 300 odd pages about something and not invest yourself in it and not care about uh, about the contents and the some of the contents is is damning and and distressing but i think the good thing about it is it it makes us aware and i think as soon as if you read it all of a sudden you'll be aware and if you're in those situations then in in um in the corporate world you can question it and you can actively do something about it and that's what i like about the book is i think it's just raising awareness so that we don't just you know, accept things as they are and sort of have the courage to speak up when things happen. You know, if someone, you know, some male colleague just says something that makes everyone feel really uncomfortable, like don't just sit there and laugh, like uncomfortably, yeah. <laughs> which I've done. And, um, yeah. Well, so. I, think all, we, I think we all have and, it, you know, that's one of the things I tried to to say in the book was that, you know, there are great feminist texts that, unpack the structural inequalities in our workforces and, and explain why they are a collective problem and not women's individual problems. And I completely accept and agree with that. But in the end, you're the one sitting in the room when the guy makes the disgusting joke and you're the one that has to respond. So you can sit there and think structurally and socially, this is a problem and hopefully in a hundred years it won't exist, but you still got to re you still got to react, right? And 
sometimes it's easier to laugh. Sometimes you don't want to be that girl who's going, hey, excuse me, not okay. And sometimes it's tiring being that person. Sometimes you're exhausted. Sometimes you're embarrassed. Sometimes you feel like it's not your place. And I, I wanted to write a book that didn't speak to women from ye on high, the mountain of knowledge, but instead said, here, I've done all this research. Let me share it with you. But I am just like you down here in the trenches getting it wrong being an imperfect feminist every day mm. well well thanks very much for, for writing it because i think it's really going to help a lot of people so you know anyone in that situation do um, get get her book because it's um it's a really good read but i and i want to talk to you about your other books but before we get to those i'd love to talk to you about setbacks and and upheavals in life because a lot of my guests have experienced setbacks in their life or their career or and they somehow became turning points for them in their career. Now, you've experienced a pretty major life, life upheaval um, a few years ago in the form of a re- recurring brain tumour and two brain surgeries. Um, so as a result of that, you live with ongoing health challenges. So can you tell me a little bit about that and what impact do you think it's had on your career or the way you approach your work now? Well, yeah, I mean, it's had, it's had an enormous, it's had an enormous impact on every aspect of my life. I, I, I would think I was quite naive going into that first brain surgery. I thought you had surgery, you lived or you died. And if you lived, then you just kind of went back to living your life. Uh, that could have been, couldn't have been further from, from the truth. Um, for me, um, I have an extremely rare kind of brain tumor. And so it's not a lot of research about it. And it's not a lot of people who talk about it because, I think there's about a dozen of us in Australia who have it. Um, so it's not that common. Um, I'm part of a lot of international forums, which help being able to talk to a few people um, who've gone through similar things to me. But it is complex. And I think that the first shifts I went through were more mental health shifts than anything, um, emotionally adjusting to the fact that this would be my life now, that I would always live with the constant threat that, that this thing could come back and it has come back a couple of times. And um, now I, I had, I've had a couple of brain surgeries and a lot of radiation um, to treat it. At the moment, it's um, knock on wood, uh, stable, shrunk and stable um, and doesn't look like any, any movement is going on. Um, but I do live with the disabilities that are a consequence and my disabilities present themselves sort of akin to a chronic illness, I suppose, but a more extreme version of a, of a hormonal um, imbalance. And it's, I think I'm, I'm physically now learning that because for me, I, I would have said the early parts were actually more a mental struggle than a physical struggle. Not to say brain surgery is a work in, walk in the park. It's awful, mm-hmm. but um, I still found the mental struggle harder early on. Whereas, now learning to manage a body I don't understand remains a daily challenge and I'm someone who goes at life hard and fast and 100% and I like to push myself till I break and um, like I was the kid that always got sick on the first day of school holidays because I'd worked so hard until the end of term and I can't do that anymore. Like I I, I end up in hospital um, and with life-threatening situations if I it's a medical emergency when I push myself now so um I I think I'm still going through that if I'm honest that that reconsideration that readjustment to a different set of physical circumstances to what Mm. I was expecting 
Is it difficult to not become resentful about it? Because I kind of think, God, I, I don't think I'd be a very inspiring person. I, I mean, I, you just never know how you're going to deal with those situations until you're in them. So is it difficult to not be resentful about it? Yeah, resentment's an interesting word. I don't feel that resentful because there's no one to resent, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Like no one did this to me other than me. <laughs> you know, I was born with this tumour, we now know. Um, I didn't know that before, but um, it was always going to happen. Um, I, I, more than anything, I look back and think how fortunate I am that I didn't get it when I was a kid, um, that, that I got to be a fully grown adult and have a bit of life beforehand so to have that to fall back on and to not have it define me, I suppose, because I had a real sense of self and sense of identity beforehand. So I don't think I feel resentful. definitely feel angry a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I try not to show that or talk about that too much publicly because anger is not very productive. Um, But I do feel really angry. I feel angry at what's happened to me, I feel angry at my body. I feel angry at my brain that it doesn't work the way it used to. I, I get frustrated when I can't remember things because my recall's not as good. Um, I get annoyed and upset when I can't exercise or I miss work or I look in the mirror and I still every day forget that I don't look the same and I catch sight of myself and I, I will do a double take every day because I still expect to see the person that was there three years ago and I look so different. It's it's um that can be overwhelming so yeah there's I, I do think there's anger there but um I'm working on that and I think I'm still very close to it I, I'm still have my brain scanned every three months because of the risk this thing grows back so it still feels very current and very visceral and I, my hope is that as I start to accept my body and its circumstances for what it is that the anger will dissipate mm. that's the plan yeah <laughs> So since you wrote your first book, you do an, you seem to do a lot of different things. So tell me a little bit about where you now focus your energy from a career point of view. Yeah, I'm all over the place. I am, am having a proper portfolio career experience. Love it. Um, I, so I work for – predominantly I work for the Nine Network and um, – so I work for Future Women, which is uh, an amazing organisation run by Helen McCabe, who used to edit the Australian Women's Weekly. And it's a membership-led content organisation. So we create podcasts, we write books, we write articles, we host live events three, four, five times a week for a community of women members. And what we do is focused on their work and focused on getting them ahead in the workplace and dealing with whatever challenges they're experiencing in the workplace um, as they come. So whether that's wellness or burnout or discrimination or diversity and inclusion or managing up or hiring or networking, we respond to where they're at. Uh, I love doing that. I, I love the team at Future Women and I, I really enjoy working with them. Um, and I get to interview some fabulous people as a result. And um, I'm co-hosting a couple of podcasts, uh, one about books and um, called Anonymous Was a Woman, which is just like I can't believe, I still can't believe they pay me. Uh, it's so much fun. And uh, The Briefing, which is a daily uh, news show, and um, I'm on with a rotating, rotating cast of hosts. And then I do a bunch of different writing, and um, all of it actually for Nine, because Nine now owns the Fairfax papers. So I write for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Good Weekend, and Sunday Life, and that keeps me going 
with a column every week, sometimes a couple a week. Uh, so I'm very fortunate in that I've got no shortage of space to write about my ideas. And in between all of that, I try and squish in writing a book. But at the moment, that's not working very well. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Since uh, lockdown, you've actually come out with two books, right? Yes, I'm avoiding writing another one by writing different books. <laughs> well, tell me, so tell me about untold resilience because that's something that I haven't, I haven't been able to get a hold of it over here in the UK, but dying to read it. Tell me about it. It has been the loveliest project to work on that I have ever done. Uh, so it was created by um, the team at Future Women and, um, when the lockdown began in Australia in March, all I wanted was to talk to my nan. Uh, my nan had lived through the polio epidemic as well as the tuberculosis epidemic. And I remembered her stories about, about those. I remembered her stories about being sent home from school for six months to look after her siblings and not being allowed to go outside the house except for an hour every evening where they're allowed to go out and play when other kids weren't around. And it was all so dramatic and fast back in March and I just wanted to talk to someone who'd been there before and my grandmother died in, in 2013 um, so that wasn't possible. So I went and found other people's grandmothers and so Untold Resilience is the stories of 19 Australian women, uh, mostly in their 80s and 90s, who have lived through periods of enormous global upheaval before. So some have been refugees and many of them lived through world wars, pandemics, epidemics and periods of great poverty, including the Great Depression. And we have told their stories as well as shared their wisdom, I suppose, with a new generation who are really yearning for that right now. And it's been a real project of uh, a real project of love, to be to be honest. It's been really uplifting to meet and chat with these women through the lockdown. Sounds amazing. And you also wrote a, a children's book called I'm a Hero Too, and yeah. that came out of how to explain COVID to your young son. So tell me about that. Yeah, I, I have this tendency of um, uh, writing books for problems I had previously. Uh, sort of solved them retrospectively. Um, my little boy was four when the pandemic began. He's five and a quarter now. He would he would want you to know that. Um, and when the pandemic began, I, I wanted those resources to be able to show him and read to him and talk to him about. And all I could find were YouTube videos of spiky green balls with angry faces. Like that's all there was and it just was not what I was going for. And so I wrote I'm a Hero too, and uh, – the people at Puffin, uh, who are the children's arm of Penguin, really liked it and helped me turn it into a children's book and found me a beautiful illustrator, Peter Chong. And it's a story of a kid called Artie and Artie's uh, world changes. Uh, kinder gets cancelled. Artie can't go to swimming lessons or ballet. Artie doesn't get to go to the cafe in the mornings to get a baby Chino with Dad. Dad works from home and everything gets very confusing and Artie's not allowed to see Artie's grandmother anymore. And so in the first part of the book, what I'm trying to do is help little kids grieve. I, that, that's a big word. That's a big word for little people. But little kids gave up a lot um, and have given up a lot and are still giving up a lot in some parts of the world, including yours, to keep others safe. 
Mm. And little kids are largely unaffected by this virus. Um, so they're doing it for others. So the, the book very quickly moves to a place of recognising young children as heroes and contributors to addressing the pandemic and recognising that they are keeping their grandparents and their parents and other older people in their lives safe and moving them to a place of feeling powerful again. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love it. But with all these projects going on, how do you how do you manage them all with all your writing commitments as well as doing books and um, podcasts and everything? How do you manage it? Uh, I write in bed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am an early riser. Um, I often work best in the morning and particularly because my medication um, hits in the morning and so I feel my best in the morning rather than in the evenings. So where I can, I tend to get up early and just smash out work in the morning before anyone else is awake. Um, uh, my little boy, if I'm not in the house, will always say she's at the, cu- she's at the cafe writing, uh, which is where I tend to be when cafes are open, um, at the cafe writing. Uh, I'm a really organised person. I do organise my time very carefully and I definitely procrastinate and I feel lazy sometimes like absolutely everybody but I do tend to organize and reorganize when I've lost some time because I was procrastinating and I'm quite willing to, if the writing isn't coming, if the creativity isn't coming, just not push it too hard and just drop it and work on another project. And that's one of the real joys and advantages of, of having a real kind of portfolio of things to do. Um, my friend Susan Carland um, is also a writer and an academic and she always says to me that, if you call the plumber, the plumber doesn't get to say to you, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm just not feeling it today. I can't fix your pipes. <laughs> like if you're a writer, just write. That's your job. And I always try and tell myself that on the days that it, that it won't work. Um, doesn't always doesn't always get me writing, but sometimes it does. That's such a good way of looking at it. <laughs> I love it. Looking back, can you see that there were lessons or skills that you learned or developed in previous roles that are really useful to you now I think working in politics taught me the importance of managing up rather than just managing down I think you know when when we reach leadership positions in our lives in government or the corporate world or or in the charitable sector we we think very much about how we manage the people that now work to us and we don't think enough about the fact that we all have to manage our bosses as well and we have to manage their moods and their expectations and their needs. And politics really taught you that because you had so many bosses. You had your immediate boss, but then you had all the other ministers and their chiefs and stuff, and everyone had a piece of you and everyone seemed to be in charge of you. Um, and I do think that meant I, I kind of got a skill of being able to identify what people needed and deliver what they needed and help them fill holes um, before they emerged and, and kind of plug the gaps for them. And I think managing up as well as managing a team that work for you are, are equally important. Um, I think also being in those roles and doing that managing up in politics, there's not a lot of time for managers to think about the people who work for them and the interests of them. And I remember feeling a bit forgotten sometimes and a bit unappreciated. And I don't think I necessarily was. It was just the pace and the nature of the environment. But I carried that forward into my future work. 
And I, I, I spend a lot of my time making sure my team know that they're appreciated, that they can come to me with anything, but also that I'm invested in their future, not just their future at the company that they're working at now, but their future long term and that I want to help them get there and that I can't deliver a pay rise every day, but I can deliver opportunities to learn and opportunities to observe and to go to things or be part of things or work with someone or work on a project that they're interested in that perhaps they wouldn't have otherwise got to. So I think I spend a lot of time thinking about what other people need Um, and I find that despite the fact that would probably be described as a very feminine trait, I think it's an incredibly important and undervalued trait in our workplaces. What advice would you give to anyone who really wants to change their career or make some kind of pivot but they're just afraid or they don't know where to start, they're making excuses why they shouldn't do it? What advice would you give to them? I would say that once you've done it, you can always paint it beautifully in retrospect. So when you look at someone's resume, they never list all the jobs that they went for and they didn't get. They never list the degrees that they started, but they never finished because they failed a course. They don't list the gigs where they got fired. They don't list the things where they didn't advance past interview or their application wasn't very good or they submitted for an award, but they didn't get it. You don't put that on your resume. You put the things you got. And so it doesn't matter if you don't get a few things. You know, have a go. It might take 10 applying for 10 jobs. It might take writing 10 sets of selection criteria out before you land one but once you're there and you're enjoying it and you're challenged and you're excited and you're thriving you won't even remember the jobs that you applied for and you didn't get so I think we're often I think we take it quite personally when we when we seek a new job or we we take that leap to ask for a promotion and we're told no But in the end, there are a thousand reasons that that could happen. And any of us who's ever hired people or promoted people knows that. There's so many different considerations and it's not always simply about the best person. It's about the best fit for that job at that time in that role in that company. And that's a very specific person. So I think it's about recognising that you've got to take a few of those risks and be willing to have those falls and those little emotional hits knowing that in the long term, you actually will not remember them. Mm, Good advice. Very good advice. So you've always taken, well, it sounds like you've taken more of a tactical approach to your career rather than having like a set five-year, 10-year plan. But uh, with that in mind, do you have an idea of what's next in your career or where, is there a direction you'd like to kind of steer it in? You know, that's a hard question for me to answer because I think a few years ago I would have had a pretty simple, straightforward answer. But becoming really unwell and and navigating this new set of disabilities, I, I think at the moment my challenge is to do the job I've got really well with the new challenges that I've got. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't need a new job for new challenges. The new challenges are now internal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um And I want to find a way to make work work for me. And right now I'm not looking for enormous career advancement. I'm not looking for more money. I'm not looking for higher positions. I just really want to be fulfilled and work on interesting projects. So I I think probably for the first time in my life, for the next five years or so, I'm quite happy to do more of what I'm doing, Um, trying different podcasts, writing different things, doing bits and pieces of TV, 
changing it up while I get used to the, I don't want to say my new limits, but they are limits. I know you're not supposed to say limits, but they're limits, right? I've got hard limits. I can't do what other people's bodies do anymore. And and while I get used to those limits, um, I think it's good for me to tread water for a moment because the treading water's got a lot harder than it used to be. Um, but beyond that, I, I, I would like to work in politics again one day. I, I've still got the bug. Oh, good, good, good. We need more for women like you in politics, Jamila. <laughs> so... The question I ask all my guests is, what is success for you? Oh, success for me is getting to retire on my own terms and getting to see my kid grow up. And that's very different to what I would have said previously, but when the idea of just finishing a working life became questionable <laughs> and getting to see my son turn 18, 21, whatever it might be, became questionable, I, I think I set my sights a little bit lower. Um, I just want to be there. I just want to be there for it. It, it, it will be amazing just because I get to see it. And we all forget every time we complain about a birthday and, oh, I don't want to tell anyone that I've, you know, I'm 40-something this year or whatever it might be. I mean, for goodness sake – I know so many people that I spent time with in hospital in a brain tumor ward who would kill to reach 40. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, the dream of being, to being at, to be able to be 40, to be 50, to be 60, whatever it might be. Um, we, we seem to regret each year as opposed to celebrate the fact that we got to have it and yeah. other people don't. It's a privilege um, not everyone gets to, to achieve. It is. So I just want to, I just want to get through it. And then I think beyond that is, and inherent in that is that I want to, I want to be happy. I want to be, I want to be fulfilled. I want, um, for me, success would be never finding work easy, but finding it, that it challenges me and that my brain is excited about what I'm going to do and the people I'm going to do it with every day. Mm, that's a great, great perspective. Thank you. Well, Jamila, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I just loved hearing about your career from, from a very different point of view. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I feel awfully self-indulgent, but um, it was better than therapy, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks. 